Hey everyone, Brian Weber here. Thanks for listening. We have a great episode in store for you today. Before that, I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time, and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. Somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews. Giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show, using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it, will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders' journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll wait right here. Thank you. I, I got home and I was like, okay, where's a scale? I got to weigh every piece because I'm asking them, you know, this one piece, let's say it weighs eight ounces, just as a, I'm just making up a number. Mm-hmm. And I say, how many doses is it? And you tell me five to 20 doses. What does that mean? It's a huge range, yeah. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut a piece off. I'm going to weigh it, see what the percentage is of the whole, you know, and then I'm going to record the taking time, the onset, the duration, the effect, and the, you know, comments for both of us. And I did that for each one of these. To understand what your therapeutic dose is going to be for these. Exactly. Searching for how I can make this to where every night when I go to bed, I don't have to lay there in pain. I can actually get to sleep. Yep. Right. And you're going to have X grams of this brownie, and that's going to give you what you want out of that. Done and done. Yep, the same yep. way that when I take a, an Aleve, I don't like sit and make it my lifestyle about the Aleve, you know? Yeah. Well, that didn't quite work out that way. So uh, it was all over the place. And I mean, how I felt one day versus the next day, how he did, it was, it was everywhere. And it was inconsistent. It was horrible. And I just thought like anything else, I can do better than this. I got to figure this out. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. It's so refreshing when you meet someone who understands what fulfills them and is actually doing it. It's their calling, their mission-driven. That is especially true for today's guest, Mara Gordon, co-founder of Aunt Zelda's. The drive to care for a loved one is a very powerful force. Mara, confronted with the challenge of helping her husband when traditional methods had failed, turned to cannabis. The impact was immediate, but unfocused. The obstacle in turning to cannabis was there is no data on effective dosing. She wanted a prescription, but ended up with a picnic. To a process engineer, that is unacceptable. The ensuring journey in treating her husband, herself, loved ones, and eventually others, embarked Maradona Road to solve the dosing issue for cannabis. In the documentary, Weed the People, and her TED Talk, Cannabis, Separating the Science from the Hype, shares part of Mara's journey of applying a collaborative, qualitative approach in uncovering effective dosing for cannabis. Her Aunt Zelda's oil-heavy carrot cake recipe was the perfect delivery method for some of those initial doses. 
That mission has now expanded to four companies to deliver data-driven, cannabis-based plant medicines, research, and knowledge for practitioners. Please enjoy the amazing founder's journey of Mara Gordon, co-founder of Anseldas. I wanted to share with the audience before we got started, Mara is one of the first people I met in the industry. I saw her speak at a conference near Princeton, New Jersey, and it was actually one of the impetuses for the show that you had such a compelling story. And I was like, these are people that are doing amazing things. They've been doing amazing things for over a decade. And they're doing just, they're doing so many different amazing things within a very hard environment that they're working on and such adversity. And that was some of the early seeds for what now is this show. And I wanted to share those stories. So it was an honor when you accepted my request to be on the show today. So Mara Gordon, thank you for being on here. I wanted to let you introduce yourself to, to everybody of all the things that you have done in a few minutes. And I know it's a tough thing to do, and we're going to expand upon that later in the show. So Mara, um, tell us about yourself. Tell us about you know, Anzeldas and, and all, the, all the great things that you've been doing for the past 15 years. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. I, uh, when I looked deeper into the format of what you're doing and how you're, you know, your little niche, I was like, okay, right on be a little different, you know, new questions, new opportunities to share the new audience. Um, so in the, my background, um, I would say the most important part of all of this is that I am, uh, a problem solver. I'm an engineer. I look for patterns. I see patterns in places and I look for repeatability and verifiable results and all that sort of thing. And um, so whatever project I've worked on throughout my career, because I'm a serial entrepreneur from the standpoint that I've been a consultant or a contractor or, or you know, self-employed in one way or another, my pretty much most of all my career um, I've always looked at what is the problem I'm looking to solve? How am I going to solve it? And then move on. Yep. When I came to cannabis, the problem I was solving was the dosing problem. Mm-hmm. And because it is such a uh, sophisticated and complex uh, problem, I had to create a whole slew of companies <laughs> that offered a whole slew of different services in order to be able to uh, answer that question and solve that problem. So my entire entrepreneurial journey in cannabis has been around solving dosing. Yep, and and you have a great TED talk that really devs into that worth every minute that you're on there. And it really it is a very um, exacting example of everything that, that you have been doing to, to solve these problems. So we're gonna go over a lot of those companies today, uh, including Ant Zelda's and Calla Spring Wellness and the, the oil plant and, We'll go. We'll get deep into those another uh, as we get throughout our show today. But it has been a uh, to to pun it a bit of an entourage effect of companies to to answer those to answer those questions on that. So um, before we get into that, the question I always love starting with is asking about where these founders came from because you are founders in a startup industry and which is still federally illegal, and you have there there's a certain gumption that comes from that, a certain drive and a certain mission drivenness that I heard in um, your speech when we were in Princeton uh, and throughout your other interviews, that comes from somewhere and it usually starts with your parents. So tell me about your, your, your childhood, where you grew up, your parents, your siblings. 
So interesting. I am the youngest of three children, three daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I like to say that I benefited from watching the mistakes and the actions of others to learn from what works and what doesn't work. Okay. Uh, so I w- there was a lot of, of uh, drama in my house as I was growing up mm-hmm. with my um, siblings. Okay. And uh, I, was, I became very, very observant, okay. which is more my nature anyway. Yeah, right? definitely. That was part of your, as a process engineer, people, they don't fall into that. That is a part of their mindset, right? their personality of who they are. So that started from an early age. What was, right. what, were you, what were your parents like? Um, my mom and dad were from the East Coast. My father was from Morristown, New Jersey, and my yes. mother was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And yeah. um, they were first-generation American both of them. And I'm full-blooded Ashkenazi Jew. I mean, when I did 23andMe, I think it had 99.7% Ashkenazi Jew. It's pretty sad, you know, (laughs) what I am. Um, My father uh, became very, very religiously observant right about the time I was around four or five years old. Okay. And as the youngest child, I was the one that he still had a chance with to control and influence me. Mm-hmm. So all of his efforts into education and everything around Judaism went into me. My sisters went to public school. I went to yeshiva. My, I mean, everything about my education was different than them. And um, which made me feel obviously like an outsider in my own home in a lot of ways because it was like my mom and my sisters and then me and it wasn't cool to to side with dad it was more cool to side with mom you know back in those early days but um i i have have, it's been my nature to be analytical and to take these situations and 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 figure them out and and look for ways around or way through and um I learned all sorts of really amazing lessons from my father. For example, um, I learned that uh, that it's important to not learn how to become expert at anything that you don't want to do. Like my father said, that, now you got to remember this is a different age. Yeah. But my father would say, never learn how to change the ribbon on the typewriter or else every time it goes out, you'll be the one that they tell asked to do it. Yeah. Never learn how to make coffee at the office because then you'll be the one that makes the coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, so it, it kind of set into motion the, the, this, this way of me looking at what I want to learn and what I don't. The, the negative side of that, the dark side of that is there's a lot of things that I needed to learn and should learn because I still have to do them. You don't, unfortunately, in life get to just do the things you like. Yeah, you have to get through the hard stuff sometimes to be able to get to that level. So Exactly, exactly. But he also said, you know, I've got three daughters, and as far as I'm concerned, you guys can do anything a guy could do. There was no sexual limitation or gender limitation whatsoever. That must have been nice to have that uh, as an empowering in, in, in your household. Empowerment, and, and but with not a lot of follow-through. My, okay. my mother was... Um, she started working with Mary Kay Cosmetics when I was about 13, 14 years old, and she mm-hmm. became a senior director of the company. 
And uh, my father was a serial entrepreneur. He invented cheesecake on a stick. He, yeah, right. We get it like Disney World and all these things. Amazing. And, um, you know, it was like, do what you love was kind of the message that I got. Mm -hmm. That's a great message to, um, to have, because you could, you could be an entrepreneur and do something that you hate. And that's not the life that's worth living. And you won't be successful in doing that because you have to have so much passion within this industry to want to do it 18 hours a day and to fight to fight whatever that fight is. So would you say that you got a lot of your lessons from your father on entrepreneurship? I got a lot of lessons from my father on what not to do, that's for sure, from okay. entrepreneurship. Okay. Um, Which are sometimes the best lessons to learn too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I made some of the same mistakes that my dad did. Mm-hmm. Um and I've learned from them, and I recognize that I was following poor, poor role models and patterns okay. um, in the past, and um, I'm very grateful for that. I did not receive the type of training, the most basic training in accounting from my parents, like bookkeeping. I mean, of course, no, none of our generation did. They didn't even tell you how to write a check or how mm-hmm. to balance a, you know, your account. Or I got none of that. So I had to figure all that out on my own. Yeah. As a, I as got a, married very, very young. Okay. Yeah. Let's and, talk about yeah. that. When did you meet your, uh, your husband? And Well, I went to work for a company that did, um, uh, they created financial planning and they did all these things and they hired me Mm-hmm. I was only 18 years old. They okay. hired me to go around to these places, place ads in little newspapers, and then conduct the initial interviews to then for for salespeople around the state of Texas. Which so you were like from. a lead gen in that in that response. Exactly. Yeah. In those days, they had I would go into. I mean, this is like crazy. We would go in and we would set up a uh, like a recording, like two cassette tapes or whatever it was, or I think they may have even been reel to reel for all I know. This was like 1977, 76. And we would like play the message and then it would record their response. And anyway, long story short, I ended up meeting the guy who was the uh, president of the company, not the CEO, not whatever, but the president of the company. And I just like went gaga over him immediately. And apparently he did over me too. And uh, we left the company because they had a no fraternization policy and we both Mm -hmm. left and we got married and um, we had a baby and 10 weeks later he died. (sighs) So I was 20 years old and I had a 10 week old baby and I was a widow. No job, no money, no husband, no nothing, you know not really even parental support, particularly at that point. Wow. So yeah, and you were living, that. that's, that's a story. You were still living in Texas at the time. I was in Dallas. Yeah. Okay. Wow. What did, yeah. what did that moment look like after, I mean, not to brush through that, but like, what did that moment look like after that? Um, it was, uh, it, it, it propelled me into a life of, uh, survival mode. Okay. I pretty well lived, uh, a lot of my life on what's the next thing I have to, ca- you know, handle. What is the next thing I have to overcome? What is the next thing I have, the next challenge? And in 
a lot of ways that can be negative from the standpoint of you're not, there's not a lot of planning. It's more tactical than strategic, that more sort of thing. Ha- more hand to mouth. Then you're dealing at the low end of like, I need shelter. I need food. I need employment. I need basic things. Exactly. Not, we're not self-actualizing actualizing right. right now. And exactly. also grieving, gr- grieving a, you know, a loss of a husband. Right, right. So it was all of that. And also what have I done? Yeah. What have I done? I thought I was creating this little family and going to have this whole fantasy of what that was going to look like. And instead, yeah, <laughs> man no. plans and God laughs, you know? Wow. Wow. Okay. So right. you were, you were 18, 20, 19, 20 the, years old at that point. At yeah. the time living in Dallas. When did, when did college come into the picture for you? What was some of those first years that you were, you were right there? So after my husband died, I uh, applied to college. Okay. You know, it, it's like, I, I, interestingly enough, the, you know, to go back to the early years thing, you know, my parents, you know, I always say if they'd known better, they would have done better. They did the best they could with what very limited parenting school skills they had, mm-hmm. but they knew I was very smart. They knew I had all that, but they didn't, they never even mentioned the idea of maybe sending me to college. It never even came up, which is so sad. Now, I don't know if that's part because I was a daughter, not a son, mm-hmm. or it just, they were so self-consumed, they didn't. Uh, Did your sisters not go to, to college? No, no, they okay. didn't. I was okay. the only one, and okay. which is interesting because my father was a college graduate, you yeah. know, so, uh, but anyway, so I uh, applied to college at that point and it was just too hard. I had to try and create a living. I had to yeah. make a living. I had to take care of this infant and go to college. So I made the decision to go to college when my daughter started school. So she and I started school the same day. Oh. So, yeah. So for the next six or seven years, eight years, however many years was between yeah. uh, college and graduate school, she and I would sit down at the kitchen table every and night and do, your do homework our homework. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's definitely instilled studiousness. What did you do for that time frame between, you know, then and being able to, to start, that you both were able to start school? What was your? I uh, gosh, I did contract work. Like I would say, do you need any writing done? I'll do it for you. I got a real estate license and did commercial real estate. I did. Um, I worked for the Whitehall Group, which is an international investment firm that hired me to um, get meetings with CEOs with net worth of excess of you know X number of millions of dollars. I mean, I did. You name it. You name it. This is a, a kind of a very interesting internship because a lot of these things came in very handy later in life for you. Well, they certainly came in handy letting me know what I do and don't like to do. That's for sure. Also a great thing to learn. What were some of the favorite things that you took away from that time period? Right. What I, what I learned very early on was that I could do anything mm-hmm. for 16 weeks to get what I want. Mm-hmm. Now, I found that out in school. I found that out in work. I found that out in projects. I found that with dealing with people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, as long as everything in my life gets to be a project, I'm good. So that's how you kind of frame it in your head. This is a project. We're going to get through this and this will be done eventually. Exactly. There's a beginning, middle and end. Okay. And at some point I'm going to be able to say, okay, check, done, finished, got it, figured out, answered the question I was seeking to answer. Mm-hmm. Start yeah. with, starting with the end in mind there. So you and your daughter were sitting down doing homework. 
you and you in college, <laughs> right. uh, her in first grade kindergarten. And how did that progress then? Because I, I know you went to, to your undergrad, it was poli-sci. Right. Where did that come from? Well, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a teacher when I was a little girl who was, her name was Mrs. Lippman, and she was really active in politics. So when I was nine years old in 1968, I was handing out flyers for Humphrey in front of grocery stores and in front of, I mean, I, I had this thing. Mm-hmm. I also grew up, grew up at a time where um, the Vietnam War was the conversation at the kitchen table at dinner. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I grew up with kind of the liberal ideals and the, and the part of the ethos of uh Judaism is a responsibility for being of service to others and saving the world. The whole idea of tikkun olam is just, you know, save the world. And so that's the ethos to which I approached life. Mm -hmm. Um, Political science, interestingly enough, when I first went to college, my initial major was in um, anthropology. Hmm. I was studying anthropology and then I switched over to sociology because I wanted to understand the decision-making processes, mm-hmm. not just the decisions that were made themselves, but how they were made. And then while studying sociology, it was very clear that I had to incorporate the political yep. part of it. So I ended up doing a double major political science in, in, in sociology. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So and again, that kind of resonates to your understanding the process of how these things come about. What I did do was I ran political campaigns, and I started doing that in the late 80s, early 90s. And you were still in Texas at this time, right? Still in Texas. Yeah, I worked on Capitol Hill. I was a a, a legislative aide for Jim Wright when he was Speaker of the House. I was named a Craig Rupp Scholar. I was named an LBJ Scholar by Congress. Wow. You know, all that stuff. I mean, yeah, now now I sell... You know, sell <laughs> Schedule One drugs to newborns. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, the, the the world would come through. I like the world this. would come exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I did that, and then um, both of my parents got sick at just about the same time. Okay. And even though I was the youngest, I was kind of the oldest. Um, you know, in the fa- I was the one that kind of the most responsible, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. Plus, I had the most flexibility in my life. Really, with being a single parent with uh, having, I'm assuming, what is a very demanding work schedule, and obviously you're, you're through university at this time. How did you have flexibility with that? I'm surprised to hear that. Well, I left D.C. and came back to Dallas and moved my mom in with me and mm-hmm. had my father at a facility because my father had a brainstem stroke that left him a quadriplegic, oh and he God. was a huge man, so there was no way anybody could move him without, mm-hmm. you know, yep. the right equipment and everything. But... Um, you know, they say if you want to get something done, ask a busy person. Yeah, <laughs> they'll they'll outsource it, they'll delegate it, they'll make they'll it happen. They'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. You have that yeah. So that there. was really what what I did. And you know, I was I was actually finishing up school mm-hmm. uh, at the time that they both got sick. Okay. And uh, and then I thought everything was doing better, and then it wasn't. So I left DC and came back to Dallas to take care of my mom. But you know, I mean, you just do what you got to do. Yep. You know, people say, oh, you're so strong. It's like, you know, what's the alternative? Yeah, leave them there. Yeah. yeah or, there's no alternative or, on that. 
Exactly. I mean, we just do what we got to do. Yep. You know, you don't think about it at the time. You just do it. Yeah. And that's been, uh, you know, so far uh, something that you've shown throughout so much of these stories. I I saw in your professional listings that you worked as a process engineer for many years in a number of different positions throughout that time frame. Why did you gravitate toward that from being in political campaigns? It was a logical move for me because the thing that confounded me (laughs) about politics were the uh, the humans and the fact that, you know, it's those people. Now, yeah. the fact we have to deal with the uncertainty and the unpredictability and the dishonesty and all the things that go on with it. And um, I was burned out, frankly, on pol- I was burned out on the fact that I would work so hard and election day would come along and then the whole thing was over. Yep, that's it. Whether they won or lost, my role was over. So it was like this, 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 you know, the beginning of a campaign. I actually wrote a paper once comparing and contrasting running a political campaign with being the caregiver for somebody who's terminally ill. Because you you start out and you're like, we're going to do this. We're going to get it. We're, you know, we got this. And then you're exhausted. When you're at the most exhausted point in the process, the person dies or you know, you, it, it's, it's out of your hands. The election happens. Yep. And afterwards, everyone's going to go back to their own lives and you got to start over yep. and you got to figure out what's the next, what your next act is. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had a candidate that I ran, uh, who, as it turned out, I had, I had built a point where people were working on my campaigns as volunteers because I was running it. Okay. So it was like, that was enough of an endorsement to like, oh, if Mara's doing this, it must be a good candidate kind of thing. And I want to, I want to go on with her. Right. Was that some of your early managerial experience at that point? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Managing volunteers versus managing employees, very different animal, very different animal. Um, How so? Well, with volunteers, they aren't getting paid, so they yep. don't have to listen. For one, number two, you have to two, make them want to listen. Okay, we have to make them want to listen. Um, their motivation is very uh, delicate, and uh, the amount of gratitude that is uh, has to be continuously exhibited. And not that I don't exper- feel it or experience it, but I'm kind of more of a, you know, hello, goodbye, next sort of person by nature. Yeah, I'm super busy. I don't mean to be curt, but I have other, I have 50 other things I need to get to today. Or Thank you so much. <laughs> you have a question, let me answer it. Let's move on, yep. you know? And with volunteers, I would find a lot of times there was, um, this is the way we've always done it. So we're going to continue. And I'd be like, yeah, but your candidates usually lose. So if that's the way you do it, let's do something different. Yeah. You know, and you can say that to paid, not to volunteers without repercussions. Understood. Understood. Yeah. For example, I'll give you a quick example. Mm-hmm. I implemented uh, where I was having, I was buying these big, um, got, you'd have to buy lists of labels. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the olden days. Buy the labels from a mailing list from a constituency. Okay. So they would be selling the labels with people's addresses on them. Right. You would like yep. buy it from the Democratic committee or yep. from whomever you'd buy it from. And they would literally send you sheets with lists. Or, or the, and they'd be on sheets or rolls depending on what your process was. Well, historically, volunteers would sit there with envelopes and they would take Oof. off the sticker and they would put them on. And then they were responsible for keeping the zip codes in each one of, you know, 
a pain in the neck. So yeah. I said, why don't I just send it to a fulfillment center where they put it in a machine so I would have the printer send the brochure directly to them, send the labels and automatically bag to the right different zips. Outsource this. Very, very efficient. Yeah. And the volunteers were very upset because I had taken part of their work away and I saw it as me benefiting everybody. You can do something more fulfilling, more enjoyable than just sticking on these things, right? There. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. Who, who took my cheese, yeah. And so um, becoming a process engineer was, I was on a project that I had been brought in on and there was over 5,000 requirements for the project. And I was like, how are you guys gonna manage these, prioritize them? figure out the dependencies, all those things. And they all looked at me like I lost my mind. They had no idea. They said, well, just put them in a spreadsheet. And I'm like, well, you can't, that doesn't, anyway. Yeah. So I started investigating and I found out about this thing called process engineering. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, my gosh, that's got my name all over it. And yeah. you got into that. And I saw that you worked at a number of different firms. Finally, uh, I think your last firm was, was Safeway, the, the grocery store. Yes. When, and this is featured in the, in the TED talk, but can you tell us a little bit of a story about like how, I mean, I, as a child, I know you were familiar with cannabis from, you know, your sisters and you tried uh -huh. it a few times throughout your, uh -huh. your life with very limited success uh, or enjoyability. Can you tell us the story that you shared within the TED talk about your experience and, and finding cannabis and finding it as a treatment for, for what you were going through? I uh, sure. Um, so I have this friend named Kay Cordopassi mm -hmm. and uh, completely have permission to use her name because God knows it's everywhere now. Yeah. I had met her while I was traveling and um, she told me that every day that she gets up and she wakes and bakes, she mm -hmm. takes uh, her little puffy off of her hello kitty, little pink pipe. And that's how she starts her day. Now, Kay has, um, I'm not really sure exactly the number of years, but something like 20 years sober now. Mm -hmm. And so she was talking to me about how she does this and then she doesn't do drugs or drink alcohol and all that, but it was in one ear and out the other. I, I didn't, I was judging, judging, judging. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was at her home one time and they were, she was smoking with a friend and I was just sitting there thinking, oh, I just can't believe these people sitting there. I mean, there's every like, you know. Yeah every stereotype. And uh, well, anyway, she came to visit me when we settled back in our house in California. Mm -hmm. And um, when she would smoke, I would send her to the garage to smoke so that my neighbors wouldn't see her. Nobody could smell it. And I didn't want to stink up my house and all that. I lived on a golf course uh, on the, on the first green on a golf course on a townhouse and two doors down was the mayor of the town. Nice. Okay. Next door neighbor was a woman who, frankly, couldn't even stand the way that I breathe. I mean, she just didn't like anything about us because we were happy, young, younger people. So when Kay was visiting and she went out in the garage, I happened to be having really bad pain that day. Mm -hmm. And I'd already stopped using any kind of opioids or anything. At that point, I was just taking uh, massive amounts of the leave each day, of NSAIDs, yep. which is so bad for you. So I took a hit. Uh, two puffs off of her little pink pipe and the pain went from about an eight to a two, like instantaneously. Mm. And, um, I, I was just, you're like, there's something here. I was in shock. I was yeah. like, what just happened? And then when I was so furious that 
nobody had ever told me this was an option. You grew up with, I mean, the typical ditch weed, like sticks and stones and stuff that you get from whoever. And, you know, it's burns your throat and you don't know what you're getting every day. And, and, and I also saw it in the TED, you had shared you were on 26 meds at one point. Yes. And you were depressed, you were unemployed, you were, couldn't work, you were immobile. And this was- And this fat. Was a, mm-hmm. Let's not leave out obese because mm. opioids and all that, they lead to, I mean, the sluggishness and the, and the, just the, it was just gross. It was just gross. Mm-hmm. So this was a, this was a curtains have kind of come away kind of moment that like, this mm-hmm. is something else. Correct. You know, like those are like aha moments or spark moments. What happened after that? That was a kind of a spark moment for you that there might be something here. What did that journey look like going on from there? Well, you know, I had absolutely no desire to start a business. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was not interested. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of, so I started the the search for the solution. Yep. I now know there's something there. Where do I get it? How do I get it? Who can guide me on what to do? This is 2010. I, uh, well, the very first thing I did, and it's important mm-hmm. just as part of this is, I, for the very first thing I did is my husband is sober. Okay. My husband has now been sober for 31 years. Good for him. And he is a severe pain uh, patient just like me, okay. who's refused to take any opioids and has only been using like NSAIDs and things like that just like me. Yep. So Kay being sober... And, and looking for something for my husband at the same time, I was also looking for something for myself mm-hmm. uh, as uh, something I have in common with most women. And that is that we will do things, uh, we will go further and push further to help somebody else more than ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if it had just been for me, I probably would have been like, oh, you know, if I get some, it'll be good. But because this was something potentially that he could use also, it was like, this is something worth investigating. So I found a doctor to write a uh, recommendation for us so we could get the permission to use it in California legally. And um, he was so afraid to actually guide us. I mean, he couldn't answer any of my questions. He acted like, you know, he he acted like he was doing, you know, backdoor abortions out of his back room is the way that he treated it was like, you know, ushering us through the waiting room so his regular patients wouldn't see us. Okay. Um, not not um, making themselves available for verification from a dispensary. I mean, everything about it was just like. Was this common for for doctors at that time frame? That was this still kind of like a backdoor kind of a it passed, but we could, we could write prescriptions for this. But doctors didn't want to be labeled we doctors. Well, you can't write a prescription for it. You still mm-hmm. can't because that's a federal document unless it's Sativex, mm-hmm. but um, uh, or Epidiolex, excuse me. But you can um, write a recommendation. But at that point, then you had mostly what I call doc in the boxes where people would go and then, you know, they'd see the half naked nurse on Venice beach, you know, pushing for, you know, $65, you know, we'll give you it for anything. Gotcha. So these were the, those were the churn and burn kind of doctors that were just like, they're set up for that purpose to fulfill that, that supply chain. It's like, I couldn't make it as a regular doctor Mm -hmm. because I, I sucked. So I'm going to go become this cannabis doctor. Right. And, uh, and frankly, in my experience in this industry, and I hope I can share this to pass on for other people to save them, if their profession has the word cannabis in the name of what they're doing, go to someone else. Okay. 
There's no such thing as a cannabis lawyer. There's a mm-hmm. lawyer who also understands cannabis law, but there's not a doctor. It's not like there's a separate set of medical books. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah it's yeah. Anyway. So I went to this guy, he had nothing. He gave me a sheet of three dispensary names mm-hmm. and pointed to one of them and said, this is the Nordstrom of dispensaries, mm-hmm. right? And, and you love Nordstrom. And I you love, love Nordies. You love yeah. Nordies. Yep. Love Nordies. <laughs> so uh, they have the nicest people working there. They just do. It's like okay. they're, they're just nicer than other places. So I thought, okay, this is going to be good. So I go there and it was terrible. They didn't wow. give me any guidance. They gave me, and he didn't know. I mean, God bless him. It wasn't like he was, he was rude or trying not to help me. He just didn't have any information. Yeah. And he pulled out like a just a weird assortment of things. It was like you went there for pain right. meds and you got like a picnic and it was just like, here's some right. popcorn and here's some brownies and whatever else. And you're yeah. like, what? this yeah. is not what I was expecting. <laughs> right. Rice Krispie treat. It's yeah. like, I'm confused. <laughs> so I went ahead and I, and I, we bought the three things that they told us. Mm-hmm. And I went on the way home, I bought a new moleskin, which by the way, I still have. Oh, and Oh, I still have every note that I've ever taken. I mm-hmm. even have my, all my original composition books from this. And, um, uh, I got home and I was like, okay, where's a scale? I got to weigh every piece because I'm asking them, you know, this one piece, let's say it weighs eight ounces, just as a, I'm just making up a number. Mm -hmm. And I say, how many doses is it? And you tell me five to 20 doses. What does that mean? Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut a piece off. I'm going to weigh it, see what the percentage is of the whole you know, and then I'm going to record the taking time, the onset, the duration, the effect, and the, you know, comments for both of us. And I did that for each one of these. To understand what your therapeutic dose is going to be for these. Exactly. Searching for how I can make this to where every night when I go to bed, I don't have to lay there in pain. I can actually get to sleep. Yep. Right. And you're going to have X grams of this brownie and that's going to give you what you want out of that. Done and done. Yep, the same yep. way that when I take a, an Aleve, I don't like sit and make it my lifestyle about the Aleve, you know? Yeah. Well, that didn't quite work out that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was all over the place. Okay. And I mean, how I felt one day versus the next day, how he did, it was, it was everywhere and it was inconsistent. It was horrible. And I just thought like anything else, I can do better than this. I got to figure this out the entrepreneur's mission right yeah, there. There's right, a better way. Right. There's a better way. So what did that look like then? So you're you're experimenting with this. You're you're not getting the results that you want, but you know that there's a solution here. Mm-hmm. Where does that grow from there? Well, I called Kay. Okay. Who lived up in Oregon. And I was like, Kay, Kay, I, this is awful. I'm just going to make my own. I don't know anybody who grows cannabis or has cannabis though. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that I live in the Bay Area of California. I don't, you know, the center, you know, yeah. epicenter of you the can world. You just walk around cannabis. and find somebody. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't swing a cat without hitting them, you know. I didn't know anybody who grew cannabis in California. Mm-hmm. So I went up to Oregon and I went ahead to Ashland, to a doctor in Ashland and got a card mm-hmm. so that I could legally do it. Now, at, Oregon was crazy the way you had to do it. You had to find somebody who was willing to be your caregiver and they were allowed to grow for you and your name went on the plants. Mm -hmm. So I said to Kay, I was like, you want to be my care, (laughs) whatever. And she, she ended up not growing for me during that, but a good friend of hers, um, who lived up on a mountaintop, a woman said, uh, 
she was going to give me the granny rate. And she gave me uh, uh, the best price. She sold me two ounces of triple X chem dog uh, at the granny rate. I think I paid $200 for the whole thing. Wow. Brought it back to California, which of course that was illegal going across the state line, but it is what it is. And I started figuring out how to make oil. I just figured it out myself. There was no forums back then. There were no instructions. There were no YouTube videos on it. Yeah. You're like, how do I decarboxylate? How do you do all those things? You were figuring those things out. I had never heard of decarboxylate and nor had anybody else ever even mentioned it in those days. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that people were making edibles is because they were decarbing while they were cooking just accidentally and they didn't know that they were doing it. Yeah. Exactly. By the the process, almost like with beer, you had to boil it ahead of time and it removed, you know, the pathogens that were in there. So people who were drinking beer weren't getting waterborne pathogens, how that happened. So it just kind of came along for the ride, uh, accidentally. (laughs) So I saw some of your videos and stuff and I don't want to like leave the story on this, but like you took a very systemized approach that you had a common stock of everything. You broke it apart and you're like, we're going to process engineer this. Right. So how long did that take for that first batch? Well, the first batch, um, what I did was I made, uh, the very first thing that I made was a box of brownies. Mm-hmm. And just to see how it would come out. Um, and then, because I had it on hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I know certain baking tricks that these other people didn't like oh. how to have it evenly distributed throughout the cake. And so that the ends are just as moist as the middle. I mean, that's a universal problem right there. You could retire on that patent alone. I know it's so easy <laughs> to fix that. It's unbelievable. Can we share what that is? Yes, we can. <laughs> Actually, I will share it with you. Okay. So as a cake is you take it out of the oven and it's cooling as it's almost completely cooled. You then take it and you wrap it in freezer paper. real tightly. And then you take saran wrap and you do it in both directions to where it's like a mummy. It's so tight, like Mm -hmm. like so tight in there. And then you stick it in the freezer overnight. Okay. And when you take it out of the freezer the next day and you unwrap it, it's all perfect. It's all perfect. It's redistributed all the fats throughout the cake. That is fantastic because by freezing it, you change the temperatures of everything and it just, it settles differently than it would otherwise. Interesting. So I, you know, just did that and it was like, wow, you know, the first one is working just like the second one is working just like the third one, you know. So you're getting your repeatability that you want to see here. Precisely. And so it was like, okay, I obviously am not interested in a boxed brownie mix. That's not exactly our, that's that's not our gig, you know. You're going to go head to head with Betty Crocker. Right. Uh, It's not my thing. I started looking through my, my recipe books for an oily recipe. And I came across my Aunt Zelda's carrot cake recipe, which is very oily. It's like a, like a cup and a half or a cup and a quarter of oil in it. So I was like, okay, this I can do. Okay. So right. you started making carrot cake with, with the oil that you've made from this. Yes. How did you go from doing carrot cake to, to not carrot cake? Well, interesting. I was meeting with uh, an attorney one day and he brought along a buddy of his that's an investor. Mm-hmm. Not in cannabis, just an investor in, investor in general. And he asked me a couple of questions. The first one was, how are you planning to scale carrot cake? 
Like how many a day can you make? How many, you know, how can you do that? I'm seeing the I Love Lucy episode. She's just trying to, the conveyor belt goes out of control. Pretty much. It was crazy trying to make scale carrot cake and keep it all, you know, GMP and all that. Oh my God. And he said to me that in the construction trade, the people who make all the money are not the builders. They're the ones that supply the lumber. Picks and shovels. Mm -hmm. And he said, stop baking everybody a cake and just give them the oil. Yeah. And something really logical went off. That was like, plus you can dose it. Yep. Exactly. Every time. Plus it's repeatable and whatever. And you don't have to just eat a freaking carrot cake. You can make a salad. You can make a marinara sauce. You could just eat it plain, whatever you wanted. That was the moment. And that was a light bulb moment that changed everything. That was the the light bulb moment. You're treating yourself and your husband. When are you starting to see results? Uh, day one. Okay. Day one. I mean, I was waking up the next morning after a good dose and having, uh, you know, slept through the night. I was able to um, do a pretty darn good job of taking just a little bit of oil on its own. Uh, or even just a little tiny, tiny piece of cake, because I was able to tell that each pa- each piece of the carrot cake had to weigh 25 grams on the high end and 21 grams on the low end to be a perfect dose. Okay. Um, so I could take you know 10 milligrams if I needed to, or 10 grams, excuse me, of of, cook- of cake. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started. I mean, it was like right away. I started yeah. like feeling better, having more, you know, enthusiasm about life and and everything in general. And you have less pain. You go out walking. You're feeling better. It's a exactly. cycle up instead of a cycle down at this point. Correct. Uh, and I'm assuming your husband as well. Same. Yes. Same. When did you? And this was probably a big pivot for you. You're able to to dose this out. You're able to fill and generate a therapeutic dose for yourself. When did the idea of helping others? with this beyond your immediate family really come about? Well, the, you mean the idea to like start a business with it, to actually start a business. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to HempCon in LA in 2011, April, 2011. And I already had started the company just so that I could be protected. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't providing medicine to anybody, you know, other than maybe a a friend or two that was asking like, oh my God, I can't believe how are you sleeping? You know? Yeah. and But I still at this point, you got to remember, I have, you know, I come from a background where this is schedule one, this is drugs, this is a gateway that, you know, you only should be using this if you need it. Stoners are awful. Patients are great. I mean, this was all where my thinking was back in those days. You know, Mm -hmm. when you know better, you do better, like I said earlier. And, um, so I was at HempCon and, you know, this was a very exciting time, 2011. Mm -hmm. And when I saw just how much opportunity there was to help people at the same time that so little of it was being done. There's an opportunity right there. There that was like, wow, these people are all looking to get rich and do all these things in cannabis but it almost looks like they decided to get into cannabis and then figure out a niche for themselves instead of solving a problem, which mm-hmm. is really the way that you should approach any business. Yep. Solve the problem first. Solve the problem. What problem am I solving? Mm-hmm. 
you know, and then, you know, and, and identifying it, and, you know, and I met some, I met some people that I still know and I still talk to and I got, you know, all that. So yeah. it was, it was a very positive experience. Did that give you a lot of positive energy to go forward and actually, you know, I am on the right track. There is a need out there for this. Did it answer a lot of those questions for you? Yeah. And I didn't have any competition either. <laughs> I mean, that was the main thing. Those are great businesses to be in. Yeah. Um, so, so then you have your formulation, you have some energy from this, you come back home. Was your husband there with you? No, my husband actually, one of the reasons that, that I was also looking for alternatives was my husband had a posterior anterior fusion of his spine uh, where they cut it open front and back. And he was laid up for eight months, couldn't even tie his own shoes. Wow. So I was making all the products. I was making all the oil. I was making all the, the cakes. I was packaging them. I was delivering them. I was mm-hmm. taking care of him. I was feeding him, going up and down three flights of stairs. I mean, it was a crazy time. Wow. Well, yeah. you're, you're used to hustling, being busy and, yeah. uh, and figuring it out. Yeah. So when did that, when it, cause in, in the movie, we, the people you are showing in the movie, helping out mainly kids who are diagnosed with cancer and they're going through a lot of issues. How did you get there? How did that, how did that work out? So it's, it's important to back up and, and first mention that a, the first cancer patient came to us okay. in, uh, I want to say late 2011. Mm-hmm. And he had been recommended by his doctor to come to us, which was interestingly enough. Interesting. And it was an older man with prostate cancer. And he was a psychotherapist. One of the things that he helped me do is I said to him at the time, I was like, you know, I want to make sure that when I'm capturing data that I'm asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. So I need help figuring out that. So he got me my first questionnaire as a starting point as a holistic slash integrative slash functional medicine person, the types of questions that I would be asking. And then I started asking, I started adding the cannabis related and expanding it from there based on theories and hypotheses. He helped you have a framework for better questions to not like maybe lead the people. That I I already, because of my background, knew how to ask questions. I mean, not leading, but I wanted to make sure that for, because you got to remember my goal is to solve the dosing conundrum. Mm -hmm. Who is going to benefit the most by me doing this? Patients. Who's the next that's going to benefit the most from this? Doctors. Doctors, yeah. So what questions are doctors going to want me to have asked in order to improve the quality of the answers? That was what I was looking for. So he was helpful with that. He was very helpful with that. So that was the, you know, that was the initial, you know, of course, obviously it's evolved myriad since then, but of ways, but so I was taking care of him and he was doing very well. And then a family reached out to me wanting me to make oil for their daughter. And she was a six-year-old girl with a, a glioblastoma multiforme. She had a brain tumor, <laughs> the worst possible kind. Well, DIPG is very, very, one of the worst kind. And uh, the, the life expectancy, I think, is two years globally wow. on GBM. They were already trying, like they were doing lasers. They were trying, you name it. And we were just another crackpot idea for them, right, at the time. But uh, one of the dispensaries donated the flour if we would process it. So we processed it 
uh, for them. And I, I was like, you know what? This needs to be concentrated because the volume of oil that she would have to take at 10 milligrams per milliliter Oof, yeah. is that's a lot of oil. And it doesn't digest well either. Like, no, yeah. no. I mean, you know, you don't want to eat, you know, a half a cup of olive oil. No. no. So um, I said, you know, we need to start making it concentrated into an extract. Uh, that's when Lawrence Ringo came into my world. Uh, who actually was written up in the New York Times as part of that whole CBD thing the other day. I read that article this morning, yes. Okay, so yeah. Lawrence and my husband, uh, Lawrence uh, started, and, and I think Mike Hyde too, started walking him through how to make extract. Okay. And we ended up then teaching them afterwards. We improved on the processes so much that we were able to then and help Ringo. And when Ringo was sick, Mm -hmm. and he was dying of cancer, he was giving us his flowers to make him oil, his oil for him. Wow. wow. Just kind of as a full circle back. Yeah. And sharing those, kind of open sourcing that process improvement as well of like, here's how we can help. That's how we used to do things in this industry. Yeah. Everybody wasn't all worried about their IP. Everybody wasn't so afraid about their patent. It was about how can we make better medicine and help more people? Yeah. Yep. So after that little girl, it then, you know, um, uh, people talk in waiting rooms, people talk and they start hearing and learning. And then um, I met Christian Evans, uh, uh, Ricky Lake's late husband, and uh, he asked me if I would be involved in this documentary. And I said, no, yep. absolutely not. Same way I told everybody else that had asked me at that point if I'd be in their documentary. And I'm like, no, I don't care who your wife is. Yeah. No. Were you reluctant for legal ramifications? No. Okay. No. I was reluctant because I'm an introvert. Mm -hmm. I'm an outspoken introvert. And the idea of having, you know, there, people think introvert means shy. They're not. I'm not. No. They're not. I'm not. I'm, I don't do things to draw attention to myself. I don't mm -hmm. want attention drawn to me. It makes me very uncomfortable and awkward. And the idea of having a camera crew, I don't, I don't shine. I get exhausted by it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, that's, that's actually a really good way of uh, explaining introversions. It's, it's, it, it's exhausting. He doesn't fill you up in a way. So you want to save your energy for something else. Right. And frankly, most of the documentaries that were being made at that point that I had seen or had met the crews or whatever that talked to me were pretty uh, much where they'd already decide what the outcome was going to be. And then they wrote the story to it. Yep. Instead of with a documentary, you have to follow where the story takes. Yep. Yeah. So how did they finally change your mind to, or how did, you know, you change your mind um, to, 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 I had to be a part certain, of it? I had certain requirements and they met them all. Okay. You know, and. Well-organized uh, bulleted list in order of uh, most significant to least significant. Pretty much. Yep. And, uh, and I, and I met with Ricky and Christian and learned really more about their goals and motivations and ethos around why they were doing this documentary. And I love them both dearly. I mean, I miss Christian. I'm really, I mean, it's, it's so tragic what happened with him because of bipolar, but um, they really convinced me that they were doing it for all the right reasons. And I was like, well, if that's the case, then sure. I'd rather you be doing it with someone that's actually knows what they're doing and isn't just doing it to, uh, have my company logo plastered everywhere because mm -hmm. I don't do that. You may have noticed I almost 
you know, I almost never promote businesses. I promote ideas. I promote information and knowledge and science. And science correct. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I found that everything I've read about you and have on here has been always been very mission driven, that you want the science to prevail throughout all this, whether it's your brands or somebody else's. So um, to treat the people. So they're chronicling you out throughout this cases of, of being with people. And I remember one scene that you were you were in and you just you got very somebody was basically saying, you know, this is too expensive. We've used a bunch of other things. And she wasn't very direct with you about that. It was kind of like a large roundabout of kind of saying, oh, I guess they're not our patients anymore. Because you seemed very driven there of like, we want to know what's going on so we can have control, we can measure these outcomes, whether you're, I don't care what you're doing. And obviously I wish you were following our, our guidelines here, but whatever you're doing, we need to know about it. So we know if something's tainting our, our outcomes here. Right. It's not even just tainting. So yeah. we just need to understand. I mean, keeping in mind that my goal isn't to say how many bottles of Anzelda's medicine can I sell? That's yep. my goal. No, my goal is how can I figure out how to dose X disease yep. for this population that requires information. So part of the, you know, quote unquote contract of a, a patient who's worked with us you know, through those years, it's, it's just a different world post Prop 64. But in those years was we provide you the medicine, you provide the feedback. Mm -hmm. And the reality is in that particular point, in that particular scene in the film, they were getting free medicine. Mm -hmm. That was just an excuse for why they started a, a company that's an example of a company that's, a, we got a brand, we're yep. going to create a brand and then we're going to figure out a way to make lots of money and have somebody go, you know, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Exact opposite ethos. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that, I know that didn't resonate with you and it was shown in the film, which is on Netflix. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, please go watch. Yeah. It's hard to see one of my less than than best moments on a 30 foot screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you were upset and for justifiable reasons, because this is a bigger picture that you have. And also people rewriting history. So let's kind of kind of zoom out for a bit then. So what has been going on? I don't want to like fast forward too much, but what has been going on with Aunt Zelda's since the film? And I know we alluded to this earlier on in our conversation, but you have been kind of building different puzzle pieces to solve that initial answer of, of dosing and, and, you know, having the commonality for all these meds. So what has Zelda's been doing since then? So uh, We the People started filming either late 2012 or early 2013, and it stopped, I want to say 2017, end of 2017, something like that. Yep. Well, it's, you know, it's been a while. And not everything in the film is shown, for example... Uh, in 2015, I started Zelda Therapeutics, mm -hmm. which is a publicly traded company on the ASX and the OTC. We've now merged with Alira. Uh, so it's now Zalira Therapeutics. We've done... Uh, why did you start uh, Zelda Therapeutics? And specifically, why did you actually start it in Australia as well? I started in Australia for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. Number one, the guys who had the money were in Australia. Okay, that's a good start. Okay? That's, yeah. good, that's good enough for reasons anyway. Yeah. The <laughs> second part is it's huge in biotech there mm -hmm. in Perth, which is where this is. It's a big bio biotech center. And um, uh, there's a great need in Australia 
So it was it was just kind of a perfect storm in this situation. But it had more to do with that where you know you go where the money is and you go yep. where the technology and all that it's going to be available. And the, re- the human resources there. But what was what was Zelda Therapeutics created to to solve that you couldn't do through through Aunt Zelda's that you had here in the states? Well, it, if you think about what I was looking to do, and that was yep. solve dosing, mm-hmm. and it was to solve dosing so that doctors can recommend it with confidence. No doctor is going to recommend, I don't care, like, like Donald Abrams says, you know, the, or I, I don't, he, he of course stole it from someone else, which is a lot of what Donald does, but the multiple of anecdotal is still anecdotal. Yep. So the only way that all this data I was collecting and all these theories and hypotheses that we created as a result of this, uh, uh, all that I've been doing will not hold water until they are validated by uh, gold standard, double-blind, placebo clinical trials. And that's outrageously expensive and not available to do, certainly not in 2015 in the United States. Yep. Okay, so you you had that. That's another puzzle piece to what you're building right there. And that was, you said that you have a joint partnership. Alira Health, and we, uh, they own Hope, the, the autism drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure what else. And we, of course, uh, we had already gone through, we've now completed um, two phases of clinical trials in our insomnia formula okay. that I created at Aunt Zelda's, tested on loads and loads and loads of patients over years, had enough clinical data to say, this justifies spending the money on a clinical trial, Yep, which is what we've done. So you had like, did you have like an access database? Were, were you were you tracking all this? And well, uh, I'm a process engineer. I developed and built a platform. Yes, I created an electronic medical record system or electronic health record system where I've we taken about 300 data points going in. We then um, we then have what they're using, how they're using it, the associated lab results, their scans, their blood work, all the things to then validate them we have all that in the back end gotcha and did you did you roll that into um zelda therapeutics no okay i retained that that's mine that's yours i sell formulas to zalera therapeutics gotcha 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 so Um, for the for the stepped off that i stepped off the board Mm -hmm. of zalera and now i'm i'm on the advisory board in whatever capacity that means whatever that means but uh yeah, I got a lot of work still left to do. Yeah, so what does that look like um, next for you? And I know when we originally talked that you were you were very proud of, you know, that the system that you had built with that and the data points that you had for that to mm-hmm. uh, to be even be beyond like more of an expert system to help understand and guide and build these therapies, if you will, that have your data points that are shown treating different ailments with this. Mm-hmm. What do you plan on doing with that data from that? Are you guys going to be still developing and selling formulations? Well, I will continue to do that for sure, yeah. uh, whether I sell them or license them or however that does, because that helps me to keep prices down so I can give cheap or free medicine where I can. You know, I want to one has to pay for the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I've had many, many doctors around the world wanting to get their hands on my software for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, because the data is, is so helpful in helping to guide their patients. Mm-hmm. So one of the really positive things about this whole uh, sheltering in place uh, 
is it has allowed me the opportunity to be in one place long enough to focus and looking at how I can take this and scale it to make it available uh, globally for people who are in the uh, medical field to be using this data for scientific inquiry, to use it for treating patients, to use it for cultivators to know what to grow. When you started Zelda's, it was to identify dosing information that is gonna allow patients to treat themselves and more importantly for prescribers to have the information to then treat their patients. How is that getting out to prescribers around the country and in medicinal states now beyond just people putting up popcorn and brownies on there? How is that information getting to to caregivers and also to patients? Uh, that's a very good question. Thank you. So one of the one of the uh, things that is very important to me is that patients communicate with their doctors that they're using cannabis. So I have helped them with the vocabulary on how to share this information with their medical provider so the medical provider isn't blindly treating them and not understanding how to read the results of how the patient's doing. It's an unfair it's an unfair advantage to a patient and a disadvantage to a medical provider uh, and it's an unfair disadvantage then to both to not have that open and, and back and forth communication. Mm-hmm. So patients are more and more, instead of me getting the crazy Hail Mary phone call when they're down to trying lasers on the stomach for the brain or whatever, I, I now, even since COVID, six different times have been the first phone call after somebody got a diagnosis. Okay, just in this last, just, and I say six times, I'm talking about six times of people who are in the cannabis industry and it's a family member. Mm-hmm. So, because when it matters, they want to do it right there. And all of a sudden, their gummy bear isn't the medicine, right? <laughs> right. So, what I always encourage them to do is, is to speak to their doctors about their cannabis use and let the doctor know that we are available to help them to understand better. You know, you mentioned earlier in this about Calis Spring Wellness, and it's important to include it here because yep. I don't, I've never wanted to be the one giving medical advice. I never wanted to be the one telling people. I just wanted to have the information to empower those who should be doing their jobs, yep. right? So um, I started Calis Spring Wellness because doctors, and, and whether it's going to continue to exist or not, it's, it's, it was more of just kind of it needed to be there because a medical professional is not allowed to work for a company that touches the plant. And Aunt mm-hmm. Zelda's, of course, touches the plant. Yep. So I started this as a separate company for doctors and nurses so that they could then use my software platform that mm-hmm. I've created yep. to do telemedicine calls with patients record all the data and update it all so that the data stays current. And that's the feedback into the system so that they're, it's flowing through right. those data points in that system. Exactly. So when somebody, like I had somebody reach out to me the other day, uh, the very first thing I did was set them up. When I say I, I mean Justin, <laughs> yeah. me, us, we, um, the, 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 the uh, royal we um, uh, set them up for a consult with one of our doctors yep. because they're not in California. 
I have no idea which medicine they're going to end up having access to. And I want to make sure that when they have a conversation with their physician, and in most states, once you leave the West Coast and Colorado, let's include it, the skepticism among the medical community is much, much higher. Mm. I mean, you have exceptions in Massachusetts and New York and some places, but they're still the exceptions. And the doctors even within those places are the exceptions. So I wanted a doctor talking to a doctor more than me. Yep. Or a nurse talking to, not really, because doctors don't really, you know, they give lip service to the nurses, do all the hard work, but they don't treat them very respectfully on their views and their opinions until they get older, you know, and then they realize how much the nurses know. Yeah. yeah. But that was really how I went about it and have continued to go about it. Gotcha. So, so physicians can, uh, practitioners can get access to that, your database, your knowledge. No, they can get it. They can get access to our doctors and the information right that way. Gotcha. Right. I have to scale it to get it, which is what I'm doing now. Yeah. You got to get there somehow. Are there cannabis or non-cannabis founders that have inspired you? Yeah. Um, I, I hate to say this right now because of what happened with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, but, you know, Steve Jobs was always a, somebody who resonated with me, you know, either love him or hate him, mm-hmm. but you don't doubt his genius and the fact that he was on, you know, all that, um, so that resonates, you know, my, uh-huh. when I, when I did an interview where I was asked what woman was my, you know, entrepreneurial role model, yep. I said a mother Teresa yep. because she's the ultimate entrepreneur. She walked the streets of Calcutta with nothing and turned it into a hospital and an AIDS thing. And I mean, before she knew it, she'd created all these incredible, you know, pieces to solve the issues that she was doing. Um, yeah, so I definitely see that as a role model also. Those are good people to look up to right there. Yeah, they yeah. get things done. They get things they get, done. They, you know, GSD. Yeah, get you done, GSD. inspire people, um, and, and change the world. So yep. um, I really appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing the different uh, things that you've done, share your personal background and, and how somebody who was, you know, immobile in pain, ended up treating themselves, treating their husband and treating a lot of other people around the world and sharing that knowledge so others can then do that. So thank you for coming on today. Mara, how can people connect with you to learn more about what you are doing? Well, um, I'm so easy to find. You are. I, I am you, so easy to find. You have your mobile number on the website. I do. Yeah, you do. I do. And people think I've lost my mind. Um, and, uh, probably <laughs> a little bit, but, you know, you can write to Mara at auntzeldas.org. It's A-U-N-T-Zelda, Z-E-L-D-A-S.org, mm-hmm. Zeldas. And you can reach me there. Uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, but, yeah. just search uh, for Mara and she's right there and great right. curly hair and watch the I TEDx. Spend, <laughs> right. I do more on Twitter than any, Twitter and LinkedIn are kind of my two biggies the most probably. Um, and even Twitter the most because it's the more comfortable platform for me. Mara, thank you for, for sharing your founder's journey with us and, and our audience today and, and, and just the, all the amazing thing that you've done and, and good luck with uh, continuing on that journey for the future. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a Lit Up media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was produced by Anthony Morgola, 
edited by Brian Weber and Anthony Margola, theme music by Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. Links from today's episode are available in our show notes. If you received any value from our show, please take a second and leave a review in iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and on LinkedIn at litupmedia. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.